Hello, and welcome to the Path of Most Persistence. This is a place where we hear and share tenacious stories of overcoming obstacles with our partners who dare to share a bit of their own personal paths. Dr. Tracy Hammond is the director of the Texas A&M University Institute of Engineering Education and Innovation and professor of computer science and engineering. Dr. Hammond holds a PhD in AI from MIT and the finance technology option from the Sloan Management School and four degrees from Columbia University. Dr. Hammond has received over $13.5 million in research funding, mentored 17 undergraduate theses, 29 master's theses, and nine PhD dissertations. She is an ACM Distinguished Member, has received numerous Best Paper Awards, and is the recipient of the 2022 Texas A&M University Distinguished Achievement Award for Teaching. The 2021 ASEE Chester F. Carlson Award and the 2020 Tees Faculty Fellows Award. Dr. Hammond has been featured on the Discovery Channel as well as other news sources. She is dedicated to diversity and equity as reflected in her publications, research, teaching, service, and mentoring. Dr. Hammond has also been recently elected as the Speaker-Elect of the Faculty Senate. Dr. Hammond, it is such an honor to have you with us today. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for inviting me. This is great. This is so good, and especially on a very hot July morning. (laughs) I think we can both agree that we needed just a moment just to cool down a little bit, because no matter how much the AC is blowing, we still need more. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I just heard this morning that apparently the power grid's having a lot of trouble and they want us to turn all of our ACs like down as much as possible. I saw that news release this morning and I thought, oh. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. But I understand. I understand and respect it. Yes. Hopefully we don't have something similar to February 2021 oh. and uh, suddenly we have no AC for a little for bit. an extended amount of time. Yeah. That was horrible. Yes. 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 But listen, I, as I read your very brief intro, I, I want to really apologize almost not just to you, but to the audience that I had to pare it down so much because your resume, your achievements, uh, your CV is so impressive, Dr. Hammond, and uh, having you on today is, is such a joy. But just as we get things going, this conversation going, I am so impressed and intrigued by the number of degrees that you have. Can you just talk a little bit more? Because I really had to uh, pare them down in my opening, but can you talk a little bit about your degrees? And the follow-up question to that is, why so many? That's a great question. Um, Well, I guess it started, I've always been a lifelong learner. Like, Mm -hmm. I just really love learning. Um, In fact, I couldn't wait to get to school, college so much, I actually graduated a year early from high school. Um, And uh, so I went to Columbia, and I guess uh, I couldn't avoid majoring in math, because math was the most fun thing for me in the world. It still is great for me. And then while I was there, I 
a friend and I were like, let's, we'd like to have both cores. So at Columbia University, you actually have a very huge core for the people who are in Columbia College. Mm-hmm. And then the if you get a BS, you actually have a whole other set of core that's, you know, there's a little bit of overlap, but the the engineering core is intense. And I really wanted to do both of them. Uh, and so I uh, started to look at, you know, what would it be to have an, another major so I could do both of them. And so I did pure math in one and then applied physics and applied mathematics for the other. I almost ended up also with a, um, a concentration in computer science. Yes. Um, so it's funny, why is my degree not in computer science? I actually ent- entered into computer science very late in my college career. Mm-hmm. Um I entered into it kicking and screaming. I, <laughs> I love <did>. that. <laughs> Tell us more. Well, I, I, I didn't want anything to do with the black box. I didn't mm-hmm. like, you know, it just seemed like this thing that you put something in and something comes out and it wasn't explainable. I liked math. I liked knowing all the steps for everything. Um, and I refused to take any class for the longest time. I had my sweet mates were like, you would love it. You would really love it. So finally, end of my sophomore year, I took one class and, you know, and it was the intro- introduction to computer science. And I came back and they're like, how was it? I said, oh my goodness, it is mathematics, but with instant gratification. Oh my because- goodness, I've never <laughs> heard it explained that way, please. Because, it, you know, I could write my algorithm and yeah. I could test immediately if it worked and I could, you know, get lots more out- answers out. And it was just a really fun way of doing math, but with, you know, instant gratification, you could instantly know whether or not it was going to work. Oh, that's perfect. And so it was just super fun for me. And one of the things I was also interested in was I was also pre-med and, you know, I was interested in doing neurology or Mm -hmm. some sort of something related to the brain. And that is what's essentially brought me to artificial intelligence because I realized that I could sort of make these algorithms that I thought would mimic sort of brain cognition and then I could test them out and so I did a lot of I I wrote programs that like automated free association association and things like that by um, stripping words from websites and doing sort of lots of different ways of of um, I don't know trying to mimic cognition and see what I could do and that was really fun for me and I almost did get a concentration in computer science um, or a minor, full minor in computer science, but I did not because I, um, by my senior year, I was um, working full time also at Goldman Sachs. Yeah. Uh, so I started that during my, I did an internship during yes. my junior year, and I just mm-hmm. never stopped. And um, and it was in, all in computer science. So at that point, I knew my career was going to be in computer science, yes. and that I knew that I was oh, going to knew it. You knew it. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> and so. Um, you know, it was just so fun for me. And so, I don't know, the day before, I had 100 an average in the class, but there was, I don't know, some event that I wanted to go to the night before. And so I was like, you know what, this is going to be my career. So I dropped one of my classes and said, I don't need a, you know, a third, you know, degree from yes. for, for undergrad. And so, um, so I did not graduate with an undergraduate computer science, but I knew that that was going to be my career. And so then I was at Goldman Sachs, and I worked there actually for four years. Oh. And then you might want to say, well, why? Why two masters, right? You Absolutely. know, the computer science makes sense. So I knew computer science was in my future. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Goldman Sachs would pay for any degree as long as you were matriculating. Well, come on. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> and so I was like, what degree would no one ever pay for me, but I you know, want to try out? And so I went through the list of all the master's degrees and, or PhDs in Columbia. And 
there were three degrees that stood out to me. Uh, one was Latin, one was Germanic languages, and one was anthropology. And uh, you had to be fluent in Latin before you could be matriculating. So I was like, oh, that's not really going to work because I don't know Latin yet. Mm. You also had to be fluent in German before you could be matriculating as well. And I was like, well, that's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> and so... Um, that left me with anthropology, which just was very... I had a lot of friends who had majored it, majored in it in um, college, and so I just thought that would be really fun to try out. Um, and so I did a master's in anthropology, and it was hard. My brain is apparently very left-brained, <laughs> so, but it taught me a lot of skills that I were really valuable to me. Um, but yeah, it was really hard, so I finished all my coursework in anthropology, started my dissertation mm -hmm. in ethnomathematics, so I sort of cheated there as well. Right. Um, and, you know, I finished all my coursework, but I still wanted to keep learning, and so I started my master's in computer science, which was super easy, and I finished that before I finished my dissertation in anthropology. But eventually I finished my dissertation in anthropology, and at that point, um, I was I was fully funded within one semester in my computer science. It just was very natural for me. I was they let me teach a class. Yeah. I was the first person who was teaching a class at Columbia as a master's student uh, ever, uh, and so, so it, it was just so fun for me. It was just it was something naturally like it just clicked with me, and so. Um, and so I finished my degree, and then I they said, you know, you got to do your PhD. Let's just switch you into the PhD. So just I keep rolling. I keep started my PhD going. at Columbia, um, and I did you know one full semester there. But while I was in the PhD in Columbia, they're like, you should quit your job if you're going to do a PhD because you know you really yes. should dive fully into it. And you know, I'm thinking about it, um, and I you know I was. Basically, it was Y2K that yes. I um, yes. I was working all night, and mm -hmm. uh, and I was just, well, I had the night shift, you know, mm -hmm. I had to check in every hour to make sure that my software worked, right. and of course, it worked perfectly. Uh, the only thing that broke that night was um, was the fact that the, the, the software that we had to check into, but anyhow, so that night, I ate six lobsters. <laughs> because that's what they fed us at Goldman Sachs during that time for overnight. Uh, I learned how to unicycle, and I applied to MIT because the deadline was was uh, January 1st. <laughs> so, and it was, you know, I, the next, so I finished my shift. I brought my, you know, big printout to the... Yes. There wasn't. It wasn't like you didn't apply online back then. You had to apply. Right. Um, on paper. On paper, <laughs> and so I went to the, the mailbox or whatever, the, the mail station, and... FedEx to my uh, um, my application at MIT and then got accepted not much longer <laughs> and so MIT seemed natural because I was accepted as a undergrad yes. and um, but I was young remember I graduated early and so yes. uh, Columbia University was 18 minutes away door to door and so that you know I lived in New Jersey and so it was it was and my mother uh, also had her EDD from Columbia University so it was just a natural fit and I had a lot of fun but I'd always sort of wanted to go to MIT because yes. I loved visiting there and there of was something um, that really bonded there as well so I don't so I think I actually made a wonderful decision going to Columbia I loved being in New York I still loved New York mm. um, but so I ended up with a lot oh, and while I was at you know MIT, they had this finance technology option that they started, and I was like, oh, that sounds so fun. And so it was really great also to learn the management side. So, Thank you for answering the question and, and to uh, talk about your degrees. But 
so many things were popping into my mind, so many questions, because um, first of all, just for our younger audience, can you inform them what Y2K was <laughs> and the significance of that and why you were doing what you were doing? Just for the younger audience that may not be aware of that point in time, which it was really quite the concern. Oh, yeah, it was doomsday. You know, there, there were people who actually thought the world might end, you know, that, you know, both from a religious side as well as from a technological yeah. side, like people were very, very afraid of January 1st, 2000. Um, and so... Which is the meaning of... Which is the meaning y. of Y2K. So yes. 2K year. Again, for, 2000. The for the younger audience. 2K nice. is... K yes. stands for thousand, thousand, so it's year of 2000, Y2K. Exactly. And uh, people thought it was doomsday. And from a technological side, you know, there was the question of when the date rolled over, would it do the right thing yes. when it turned into, you know, because a lot of the dates only had the last two years in them, a lot of the software. And so you had to make sure that the, the software had changed into a year that was four years. And you know, just to give you a little tidbit, so my software didn't break, but the software that I checked into, yeah. as soon as midnight rolled around, it turned into 1969. Oh my god! <laughs> and that's because our our number system um, in the computer actually yes. started in 1969, and so that makes a lot of sense from a technological point. For computer science point, but it was just it was just pretty funny, and that's what they were afraid of. You know, me being. Uh, at Goldman Sachs being in finance, right? Yeah. Uh, think about the implication there if, you know, stock systems break. Uh, that's what they were really afraid of, that our whole financial sector could tumble with one error. And so, you know, suddenly things got deleted or all, you know, so there's there was a huge, huge concern that, and, and you had to check every single time zone because that happened on computers across every time zone. So there was, yeah. Well, thank you for giving that history lesson because I know we have a younger audience out there and they may not have, you know, they may know through their history classes what Y2K was, but I think as you um, apply it to your experience, it really brings relevance because it was. I, I remember <laughs> that buildup. It was something that from all sectors, like you're saying, from religion to academia to all types of industry, finance, were really concerned about the rollover and, and even healthcare, happen. you know, like if Absolutely. if some system were to stop because of the computer part of it, you know, yes. like someone on a life machine or something, you know, so everybody was very freaked out. And I, I just remember being in New York, I was actually feeling good not being at Times Square because I used to always go to Times Square. They used to watch the ball yes, drop. Yes. And um, and I Personally, I had a little fear, like, what was going to happen in Times Square during that ball dropping? Because, you know, that was a, everybody, there was a lot of paranoia around that, that there event. It really, really was. So I, at some of the other earlier comments that you made, um, I'm, I'm just so intrigued. You know, you talked about graduating early from high school and, of course, all your subsequent degrees. But, again, for our listeners, those parents, those educators, just those that are interested in, in our young people, was there something that your parents did for you, your family did for you, or did it come to you naturally, that that love for learning, that desire to achieve? Where where did that, where does that come for you? I mean, I just, I love learning. Um, 
I've, I guess I've also been sort of a collector. I've moved around a lot when I was a kid. Okay. And, you know, degrees were sort of a cool a cool thing, you know, when you'd start over. They, always, they never go away, you know, no matter if you have to start over, right? And I've had to start over a bunch of times in my life. The knowledge stays, you know, the degrees stay. It's one of those, it's a wonderful thing to collect. They're fun to collect and they don't take any up any space. <laughs> so That's right. as That's a collector, right. it's a wonderful thing to collect that doesn't, that only enhances your life rather than, and it's just, I just love, I've always loved learning and, um, you know, my, my idea of fun as a kid was sort of, I'd father, I would follow my mother around to various conferences and I'd sit underneath the table when I was a kid and did little logic puzzles that basically it, it was LSAT tests is yeah. what I was sort oh of doing. And yes. So. That is so, that is lovely. I had never even thought about it in that sense of collecting. Compared to you, uh, my collection is very small. I, I only have four, but I never really thought about that because it was as if collecting. And uh, first of all, when you're a lifelong learner and you're committed to learning and you think, oh, it's a few more classes. Oh, just a few more, we'll get that next degree. Might as well, right? right. But it is a sense of collecting, collecting those achievements and those uh, almost benchmarks of where you were in your life at the time and that information that you're, they're gathering. So I love that. I never thought about And I also it thought about it giving way. me flexibility. Yes. You know, like the yes. world changes, something changes, and having these degrees in different spaces yes. uh, really, you know, allows me to understand the world better. Yes. Um, you know, I'm someone who really likes to put myself in uncomfortable situations yes. uh, so that when I'm, you know, when I when I have to be in an uncomfortable situation, I can deal with it better. Right? So if I get used to a whole bunch of things that are, I'm not used to, it really helps me sort of, when, when the world surprises me, I'm like, I got this. Okay, let's talk more about that. I wasn't expecting you to say that, but I love it. Okay, what do you mean by an uncomfortable situation? And as you follow up to that, I want to know what was the most uncomfortable situation that was also the most productive for you or meaningful? Hmm. Okay. Uh, well, I don't know. I don't know. Right, so, so examples, um, you know, when I went to Columbia, um, you know, in New York, there were, I just, I don't know. I went to lots of spaces, you know, dive bars. Uh, I went to, uh, the timeout, uh, awards for transgender, um, uh, persons to, you know, get various awards about what they're doing in, in spaces. Um, you know, I went to all the gay and lesbian dance clubs, which were the most fun on, on campus. Yeah. Um, here, uh, you know, I would go, um, I think it was, I'm a lot older now, it was a while back, but Studio 59, which was an all all um, black dance club, downtown Bryan. Yeah, I spent cool. a lot of time in um, the VFW uh, doing karaoke at the Fox Ho Lounge. Um, I you know, that. I just really like meeting people that have different types of experience than I have had. Mm -hmm. um, in, and that's probably why I also got into that anthropology. Uh, yes. You know, just trying to understand people. Um, it just, it helps you understand that 
every single person has so much to offer and that you can learn from it. It goes back to my lifelong learning. Yes. Because I can yes. learn, it helps me learn from every single person and only by sort of throwing myself in these situations that I might not as been used to as much otherwise. Um, and I will say that that is how I ended up here. <laughs> I, I, I love that. I love that. And don't you think putting yourself in those uncomfortable situations, I, I like to visualize it as if it's doing remodeling in your, your brain almost, that you're blowing out walls. You know, you're, you're restructuring that space. And when you take down that wall, so to speak, in your brain, there's more room. There's more room and it's even more beautiful and more bright yeah. because you're rearranging, you're expanding. And, and I love the way, you know, you phrase that. So, but, but do continue on on how you made your way here to Texas a Yeah. So, you know, I applied uh, very broadly, and um, I actually almost ended up at Google uh, at their Zurich office. They flew they flew me out there for two weeks. It's um, <laughs> not a bad place to be. <laughs> yeah, they flew me out there. For, I really wanted to be in their Paris office, but it didn't exist yet. And they're like, "We're going to make it. Come to the Zurich office." And you know, two week trip to come and visit some places really wonderful. They told me, "What's your number?" And I was like, "What do you mean? What number would we have to pay you for you to come here?" And I'm like, you're not just going to offer me something? No, what's your number? And I, and she kept calling me up, and I just could not answer because I was afraid that she would say yes to whatever number that I would tell her. That is interesting. I've never heard that. So did that mean you really didn't want to take it? I think I really wanted to be in academia. I love that. Okay. And... You know, there were some options because there was uh, UTH was out there. So it's mm -hmm. a university uh, there, which I probably could have worked with and stuff. But I just I knew one of my huge priorities was really lifelong learning. And I I just loved being I started when I was at Goldman Sachs. I took half days off so I could teach classes at Columbia. You know, I didn't need the, uh, you know, the money was not anything to right. teach the classes. It just was so fun for me. That, and that's how I used my vacation days took half vacation days so that I could go and teach classes at Columbia while at, at Goldman Sachs. So I just knew, and I left Goldman where I was making more money at 22 than I made at 35. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and so wow. Um, I think I would have had a lot of fun at Google. I know I would have. In fact, I had a lot of fun at Goldman, you know. Right. Uh, I didn't really want to leave, I, but I just really wanted to go. You know, like I didn't want to leave, but I didn't... I, I couldn't stop myself from going to MIT, right? And so that was, it was this, and my mother used to always joke, she used to say, you have somebody's dream job. I don't know whose it is, but you have somebody's dream <laughs> job at Goldman. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, it's sort of this this funny, um, but anyway, so yeah, I just, I never gave the number at Goldman because I thought, you know, I think I really do want to end up at, at academia and I was afraid if I said that number, then I would have to go, right? Like yes, it would be right. sort they of. Right, your bluff, yeah, so to speak, yeah, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And so, yeah, so I applied broadly and I did it the following year and I, you know, got a bunch of interviews at various places. And it was funny because I applied to lots and lots of schools and one of the people who wrote my letter was like, why are you applying to so many schools? Like, for instance, you'd never go to Texas A&M. <laughs> you remember, this is, uh, you know, a long time ago, Texas A&M yes. was um, so a wonderful school and yes. still highly ranked, yes. but not as highly ranked maybe as MIT, That's which right. I would argue right now we're pretty on par with MIT. I, yes, well, <laughs> <to that. laughs> um, 
And so, you know, I went to, you know, when I visited here, I was like, I was blown away. Like, it was just really, it felt like it was a place that was growing. It, it was on an upward trajectory. It just really seemed, you know, sort of magical. And I couldn't understand because I was a northerner and I had like huge stereotypes yes. about, uh, you know, about the South. And so, you know, you asked me about like trying new spaces and blowing away those stereotypes, blowing yes. away those walls. Yes. And the department head of computer science was a black female. I had never met any black computer science faculty in my life. And I was like, in Texas? Texas A&M, you found it. I found it. Or her. Her. <laughs> yes. And, you know, male or female. So I was just like blown away and I was so confused. And, you know, and I had such a great time. And there were so many people from MIT here, yes. you know, like we had a lot of the, the discussions I had with faculty were so impressive. And, and so I was like, well, I, can't, I went back and I was trying to, and I'm like, how do I make this decision? And everybody's like, you can't go to Texas, you know, there's, and so I was like, well, let me have another visit. They said, well, actually, actually they recommended, why don't you come down for another visit? And it was, um, it was graduation week. And so there were no hotels anywhere, right? Oh, no, no, you couldn't go eat right. anywhere. And so I ended up staying with the department head who was Valerie Taylor and I'm incredibly impressive woman um and so I stayed with her and her family uh during the time I came down to visit uh and we went to um to dinner at like the Benjamin Knox gallery because there was no place to eat anywhere and uh we walk out we get our little food and we walk outside and she's like oh let's go join this table and there uh at the table was Karen Watson uh who at the time was dean of faculties and um and she was there with her partner, and I, you know, I chatted with her, and it was just obviously she was incredibly brilliant. Um, she is now my mentor. She was a lesbian female as dean of faculties, you know, a full Texas professor A&M at University. Texas A and M University in this Texas. <laughs> also was unheard of, and I'm like, I don't understand this place. It doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> All of my stereotypes, they're not working together. I don't know what to do. I'm going there. I think we call that cognitive dissonance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it was just, I don't know, ever since then, it's been magical. And I just love seeing, I love helping Texas a grow. And I love watching it grow. And it's, it's I don't know, it's been it's been a wonderful place. I'm incredibly happy here. Oh, my goodness. I, I love that. I, I love you've, again, you've talked on so many topics. And, and, of course, we're so happy you're here. And you've absolutely added to all the achievements, making the university better and the department. So thank you for saying yes and allowing yourself to see um, that stereotypes aren't always true to what the stories that are connected to them. I have a little joke about that. I Please. say when people ask me, I'm like, well, the stereotypes, they're all true, but they're misunderstood. <laughs> and, and, and people <laughs> will ask, what do you mean by that? <laughs> I don't know. It's just, you know, there's you, there's different mindsets and there's different yeah. ways to understand actions. And, you know, and, and you know, there's certainly a lot of guns around here and, right, you know, various different. Right. But 
the rationale behind them is is not well understood and yes. and the spirit behind people is not well understood and so you know people make these assumptions about why people act in a certain way and you know it's only by getting to know people and by putting yourselves in those uncomfortable conversations or uncomfortable situations um do you really start to understand people? That that is so well said because that is really true. They, um, those stereotypes and and those uh, preconceived notions that we have about individuals. Sometimes they do. You're right. Sometimes there are some truths to them, but if you look deeper, you take that time, you may understand perhaps why it is. But beyond that, the beautiful diversity that's here as well. Yeah, right? I love so it. So some of that might be in the area, in the atmosphere, but there's so much more. There's so much rich diversity that's beautiful at every level. So, And I, I just love that I have, you know, really close friends who are so different me, for me in so yes. many different ways. Yes. So as far as making that trek to um, Texas A&M, um, what has been beyond those stereotypes being uh, re-understood, re-imagined, so to speak, what else have you learned as far as, I don't know, maybe is your new favorite thing about Texas? It, do you have a favorite thing? Have you, or being here in this area at the university, that really brings value, that was really unexpected? I think, I mean, I do, one of the things I do love is that there are so many different types of people here, and yes. so it's a... a and sometimes they're conflicting, and I, I really love bringing conflicting people together and helping them understand each other. So it's, you know, that's that's really fun. I mean, like, I, and I, that's why I think I'm so excited about being um, the speaker-elect for the Faculty Senate, you know, being that bridge between administration and faculty and being able to speak authentically to both of them and helping them be able to communicate together. That, that I think that goes, it sounds like to me from the way I'm hearing you speak, that goes back to your spirit of being an educator. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, as you were speaking about the opportunities that you've had at Goldman Sachs and even with Google, you turned down large amounts of money to teach and what I want to know what does teaching do for you I, I, it's clear what you do for others I mean you're providing all these experiences this knowledge you're sharing you're making it accessible all the things but what does it do for you that would make that enriches your life obviously you're a very happy person you you have this wonderful uh, smile about you that for yes for sure and not a little too not, bubbly sometimes no no never <laughs> never never always wonderful and especially in the realm of education the more the better as far as I'm concerned but how does that allow you give you that that fortitude that strength to turn down big dollars because that's not easy in any area I'm sure but you were able to do it because Interacting with each person is just so magical. So when I describe my teaching, I describe it most, you know, many people think about teaching as one to many, right? Like yes. you're teaching one person is teaching, you know, a class of many. Yes. For me, it's not that at all. Yes. I teach many one-to-ones. And so for me, it's about that individual interaction every single time. Yes. In fact, in my class, I started this during COVID and I will never stop it. 
and I'm, I, I'm sure this is what made allowed me to get that university teaching award last year, mm. or this year, I guess. Um, what I do with every single one of my students is I meet with them individually, one-on-one, with a TA as well, actually, or TAs, and I just ask them a couple questions. I ask them, how are you doing? How are you doing in life? You know, how are your friends, your family? You know, what's your life like? And you know what? A lot of people are struggling. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I try to be that linkage to help them, you know, get them to someone that can maybe help them. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't help them myself because that would be a um, conflict of interest. But I, I help I help them find the person who we have a person in our department who is so amazing. Uh, Kathy Waskom. I'm going to give her a little call please, out. Please do, please do. <laughs> and, you know, I just she's a mother hen. And so if I just let her know this person's struggling and then they figure out a plan. Because um, sometimes it's just you need to drop a class or you need to have some sort of alternative something. And she has the ability in our department to, to help help those people out and get them continued whatever they need. Just to be heard. Just to be heard. Just to be heard. Yeah. And so, so yeah, so that's the first question I asked them. Then I asked them, you know, how are you doing in your other classes, right? So, and then, you know, and then I finally am like, well, how's this class going for you? And they tell me. And, and then I said, you know, what could I be doing better? And then I go through... I'm like, you know, and these are the three changes that I that are significant that I made from last semester based on the feedback that the students. How am I doing in those three things, and how could I improve those three things that you know I've tried and feeling that they're not exactly working out. Um, you know, and even when they fail, they they're like, but I see what you were trying to do. <laughs> the goal was right. It, it did not execute itself well, but I see, and I'm like, yes, I agree with you. What could we be? You know, how do I fix this? You know, to get the 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 intention. And then, and then I asked them, you know, anything else you want to tell me about Texas A&M or, you know, what, yes. what else, you know, could we do, be doing better across the university? Because I have a lot of voices other than just in this class that mm-hmm. I can potentially help with. Um, and then I asked them one last question. How is this? Have you done this in any of your other classes? You know, what was it like? And they said it was transformative. So, yes, they used, actually used that word, multiple students, you know. It was transformative. It's the first time I've ever felt that I've been heard. There's, these mm-hmm. are seniors, and because mm-hmm. I teach capstone, um, and I, they're like, no, no one's ever done this before. I wish they would do this in all of our classes. I wish, you know, it's so magical. Um, so I've been telling lots of faculty that try. Yeah. So we're trying to get more people to do some things like that. And in fact, Seth Posley um, is now doing it in his class that he taught just last semester, which is for sophomores. So he did a little bit differently because he was, a, it was a class of like 99, mine was only 35. Yes. Um, but what he did is uh, basically said, hey, anybody who, here's an assignment, you have two options, write a little piece of paper, write a little essay, yeah. or come see me in my office hours and talk to me for 10 minutes. Wow. And so, um, but he's, and he asked different types of questions than I would have asked, but, uh, but somewhat similar, you know, more thinking forward thinking as opposed to like, you and, know. And it's great. There's, there's diversity in that as well, a different approach. Yes. But you started something that obviously is, is leading. At oh, but I also be. asked them, what was your favorite class throughout the whole four years yeah. and who taught it and what made it amazing? 
And so that's really fun. And then I get to give little shout outs to the people that I hear the names that they love. Like, oh, your name came up today. <laughs> and that's wonderful because who doesn't? Who doesn't like to know that they're doing well? Because you, you often remember. You only, re, you know, you only think about the two people on the yes. yearly reviews who just yes. said terrible yes. things. Yeah, of course. And so, yeah. you know, you're like, really? Someone thought, you know, I'm like, yeah, actually, your name's come up like 10 times already. You know, and it's so random, right? Like, so that's it's, right. but, you know, getting that collection of, people as well is really fun and it, you know it's really fun to get help those people realize the value that they bring the, the faculty you know as they get mentioned and stuff and it's also really neat to hear how many different faculty are you know mentioned so it just highlights how many amazing yes. faculty we have um so that's just really fun for me uh, and uh, no doubt it's fun for you but how impactful it is to those students and again your colleagues that you're sharing this uh, this tool uh, with and uh, thank you thank you for doing that but I'm curious of all those conversations that you've had with students I'm wondering two things one is there maybe a conversation or a comment that um, has really haunted you and on the flip side of that was there a conversation or a comment that a student left with you that really truly inspired you Honestly, they all truly inspired me. And so what started this, by the way, um, I, I, I created, as when I became a chair of the engineering education faculty group yes. before I became the director, actually it was right after I created the, became the director, I created um, a teaching fellows group. It was during COVID, and we j there were six of us. I, I joined in because I have to eat my own dog food. And, um, <laughs> and the idea is we would watch each other's videos for a whole semester with two hours a week together we would watch little snippets of videos and then talk about it and and then and we did it repeatedly right yes. so we did two people yes. a day and so but people knew that they would go more than once so that had this cause of you know trying to change things and actually try to do something different you know because they'd be they'd, they'd be up again mm -hmm. but also what it really taught me was well I was incredibly afraid to be part of this I have never ever ever let anyone see my teaching Okay, you using the word afraid, it just doesn't feel right. It feels very contradictory. Like, how can that word come from you? So what, where did that fear come? Well, I just, you know, because you're, everybody's overcritical of themselves, right? right? It's just, and I, and I would say, I'm always afraid. I, but for me, it's about the only way you grow is by being vulnerable and being brave and uncomfortable and uncomfortable and so you know it's just you have to get past that i'm you know i may see I, i'm truly an introvert it doesn't seem like that but i i am an introvert but i recognize the value that comes from these interactions at these um you know so not a, and, and by practicing, they become more comfortable, right? It's not easy the first time. It's sometimes still not easy the 16th time, right. but it always gets easier and easier. And then you sort of find the value of that uncomfortableness. And, yeah. uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, yes, I was very afraid for someone to see my teaching because I knew that there were things that I was not doing well, or I thought that I was not doing well. For instance, I, I'm a terrible teacher with slides. And so, and that's why I like capstone because I can sort of get away with just talking to them. Um, because, and I wait. I, you say you're a terrible teacher with slides because you use them or you do not use them. What do you mean by? I just that can't comment? teach with slides. I become okay. Okay. really terrible. I, I go too fast. I 
So like when I teach my sketch recognition class, I... Your enthusiasm cannot be contained within slides, I, I imagine. <laughs> well, I, I just go too fast. Nobody gets it and nobody asks me any questions. So when I teach my sketch recognition class, which is um, a very mathy, yes. what I do is I, I'll look at my notes right before, but then I put it down and then I just do it on the board and I... I make mistakes right in front of them, and I do it by scratch from the beginning nice. Um, nice. so that they can sort of see the thought process, and it slows me down. Yeah. And by them seeing my mistakes, also it helps them think about – and that's when I used to teach computer science coding classes, I would do the same thing. I would code from scratch right in front so they could help debug any of my um, typos that I might have made. That is – a wonderful thing to do, my goodness. And again, you're putting yourself in a vulnerable situation yes. to let them see yes. that human side, yes. that imperfect side, which is wonderful. That's exactly what young people need to see in us. Yeah, yeah. And so when I would, you know, so I would let them watch my teaching and it was just me talking. Like I was like, I don't have, I don't have anything other than me just talking and talking with them and asking them and like, and I showed them this, and I was like, oh, my God, this is, you know, I'm just going to get destroyed. <laughs> and and they were like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And I was like, you, you, they're like, you have such great connection with everybody. And, I, you know, like, and, and I do this little bantering thing right at the beginning yeah. of every class, ask them how they're doing and stuff. And so um, I was like, you mean this is okay? And it, it it taught me that I that I can I should teach the way that's most natural for me, and I should lean into it rather than sort of be ashamed of it. And so once I started leaning into that, it really has, you know, transformed my teaching. And so that was really exciting. That's beautiful. And yeah. and because so because I was willing to do this sort of yeah. scary thing and let people watch my teaching, um, now I let anybody, by the way, watch my teaching. Nice. Um, uh, and I it's what caused me to be brave enough to ask my students what they thought about my teaching. I would have never, ever done that before because I was so afraid of the criticism. Right. Oh, you're doing everything wrong. Um, but they loved it. And actually, when you give them that space, they're no longer say anything bad at the end of the semester in those little write-ups because they just want to be heard and they want to know that, right. that they're making a difference. And, and honestly, the feedback when I'm doing it in this discussion, it always feels really constructive, even if they're like saying, that totally didn't work at all. It was absolutely awful. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> and that's, a, that's nurturing a level of mutual respect that you're listening to them, they're listening to you. So you're making it, that's just another layer of providing a safe environment to yeah. learn, to be collaborative. That's yeah. wonderful. And they have great ideas. <laughs> yes. They are so they smart. <clears throat> yes. Yes. They're the the like, they're like, why don't you try this? And, and by the time I talked to thirty five of them, like the thing that didn't work, I had like a super amazing plan for the next semester. Absolutely. And so, and it helps me also like get rid of anything that is not beneficial. So, so it makes it, yes. you know, it allows us to accomplish an amazing amount of stuff in a single semester because you know all the assignments that we do are really targeted to really fulfilling whatever I'm trying to have them learn. That's that's outstanding. And they're fun because they're driven by them. And so like, you know, I as I said, I don't really, I don't use slides. I don't teach them anything. Right. And it's like almost a little shame that I got the teaching award because I say I don't teach you guys anything. I just set up an environment that makes it really easy for you to want to learn. And But isn't that what teaching should be? What not it? I think so. Though? Right, right. And I know that's... But it's not every, traditional. No, it's, it's not traditional, but uh, apparently it's 
successful. So I am trying to be cognizant of the time because speaking with you, I knew it was going to be interesting, but this is so joyful and how, how wonderful, what a wonderful surprise. I did not understand or know the passion for which you have for your students in education. I love it. But I want to turn, just pivot a little bit because I want to know about your work, your research, uh, what this conversation that we've had already up to this point. You've um, added, dropped a little bit here and there, but do you want to spend any time about your research or anything specific? Yeah. Um, so my research uh, in computer science, so I do, as you know, I have a PhD in artificial intelligence, and I also have uh, undergrad in math, and I have... Um, I also have a master's in anthropology. When you push those all together, <laughs> you know, you really do get artificial intelligence, human-computer interaction, intelligent user interfaces. So I use machine learning. I, you know, invent new artificial intelligence algorithms to recognize, identify, predict um, messy human motions. So it started with sketch recognition. Actually, it started at Goldman Sachs. I was doing speech recognition. Yes. I did sketch recognition using models from speech recognition during my PhD. Uh, I still do those things, but I'm also now applying things to recognizing mm -hmm. eye tracking, um, being able to, just by how you move your eyes, yeah. be able to see how uh, expert you are in looking at those things, uh, being able to um, see what you're going to diagnose or predict, also what you're looking at, just by looking how you're moving your eyes. And so, you know, and we've been, now we're doing a lot of stuff with activity recognition, being able just from a little accelerometer on your wrist, being able to recognize that you're brushing your teeth versus combing your hair versus scratching your chin, all activities that are very similar, uh, taking pills, um, you know, and so we're applying that now to uh, elderly care to be able to help them be as independent as possible for as long as they can uh, by sort of having this sort of way to monitor uh, cleansing activities from afar to give them you know, so that they can be monitored by a caretaker without having the caretaker be sort of on top of them all the time. Yes. You know, really trying to do things that make a difference in people's lives. Um, and then, like, for my sketch recognition, it's uh, now being used in um, five different schools to teach people um, free body diagrams and trusses. So the idea is... <coughs> excuse me. So the idea is... Um, Students will draw the diagram, yes. and it will give you feedback on your drawing. So, Because if, if you don't set up the problem correctly, there's no way you're going to get the answer correct. And so the idea is that the students draw the, the, draw the pro problem, and by using sketch recognition, it can determine exactly what you've drawn and what's, you know, what's right about it, what's wrong about it. And then it can also help you with setting up the equations and give, you know, artificial intelligence to be able to use to identify if the equations are correct. And then finally, of course, it also tells you the if your answer is correct. Yes. But you need help with the whole process, just like if your instructor were there. Yes. You don't want to just have to, um, you know, just check that answer because that gives the student no no real feedback, just whether it's right or wrong. Mm -hmm. And so by helping them check that process is really great. And so that's being used at Texas A&M, um, Letourneau University, Texas State, San Jose State, and Georgia Tech. And then... Um, and it's, it's also, you know, been really great for helping them sort of get through uh, showing that some of the people that start in the off semester yes. actually get, it's really helpful for them. Um, and it improves homework completion rates yes. as well. So it's, it's really nice. Uh, and it allows teachers to, you know, get immediate, 
feedback if the students understand because they can give them a quiz with one or two questions at the start of the class and just see how whether or not they know where the answer answers are wrong or more commonly wrong what are the common mistakes and so it's it's really great um it must be so extensively gratifying mm-hmm. in every way that not only do you have this impact on students and on research, but at other institutions. I mean, it's almost as if you're teaching at other institutions. Your your research, your knowledge, your technology, that's, that's so, uh, it has to be gratifying. Yeah. And the other software that we're using, that we made that's being used by multiple institutions, mm-hmm. Sketchtivity. Um, and that teaches people how to draw in two-point perspective, mm. so um, which is basically 3D for you, yes. you know. Um, and so, why would you want to do this? Well, Georgia Tech thinks that all engineers need to know how to sketch. They want when their engineer is sitting down at a client's dinner, and the client says, "Oh, this is great, but could you change it up like this or make it do this instead of this?" That the person can sketch right there and say, "You mean like this?" as opposed to. You know, oh, when I get back to the office, I'll update my CAD drawing and bring it back to you, right? right? And so they can really fluidly um, do that. And it's really cool because the software not only teaches them how to sketch in Mm -hmm. real time, just like if it was a person um, standing right over you, giving you immediate feedback uh, on complex drawings, in fact. Uh, It's shown that it it greatly increases your spatial cognition skills. So it gives you this extra bang for your buck. And uh, right now we're measuring the effect on creativity, uh, which we believe will be quite strong. Actually, actually, so far we've shown that it initially it reduces your creativity because you become, as you're learning how to sketch, because you're focusing on sketching well. Yes. But that afterwards, you know, once, you've, once the ske- you know how to sketch well, mm-hmm. it allows you to produce a lot more um, ideas quickly. And so it actually, you know, increases your creativity so we're trying to get that formalized uh we have some data but we want to get a lot of data to show that excellent excellent so again as we begin to close out i have a few questions one um of those would be of all what you just explained shared is is phenomenal but from you professionally academically personally what has been most rewarding for you? I would say it's the new space that I'm in right now with my directorship. So I love my research in computer science, but you see that there's a lot of, of academic yes. impact to that, right? Yes. So, and you can see how that brought me into engineering education because a lot mm-hmm. of the stuff I'm doing is directly related into engineering education. I publish a lot in that space. And what I love the most is I love mentoring students, but it is so gratifying to mentor faculty yes. and help them grow to be the best that they can be. And it's because they're here because they, they're lifelong learners and they love That's learning. Right. And, and so if I can help them keep moving forward, it has been so amazing. So we've created several communities of practice where faculty talk together, you know, talking about we have one book club that we have now uh, where we've been doing it for I think over two years now. And what we do is we, well, faculty don't do homework, so we don't read books. (laughs) We, because everyone would show up and pretend to read the book, that they'd read the books. And so what we do is we play a book on tape for 20 minutes, and then we talk about how, so everybody has the same knowledge. We talk about how it impacts engineering education and what they would be doing differently and how they, you know, what what have they learned. Um, And the first book we read, uncomfortable conversations with a black man 
So getting back to that whole, you know. So who makes the selections of the book and also those 20 minutes of content? So we, so the 20 minutes, we just go through the book. Okay. So uh, this book was actually quite perfect because the chapters, each of the chapters were about mm -hmm. 20 minutes and each chapter was about a different topic. Mm -hmm. And so that means people could jump in and out nice. with no problem. Okay. And so that's one of the things that we're, you know, we, we look for, we look for a book. And so I picked the first couple ones. Now I, my team uh, gets uh, input from lots of people and then they try to find a book that they think would be really right for whatever group we're working with. Um, and so, and we've read Pedagogy of the Oppressed, yeah. uh, Whistling Vivaldi, as we just finished, Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime. We did two movies like that. We, we watched it in, tr in chunks, uh, Picture of Scientist and Coded Bias. And what I really love is how much in those in those discussions, I basically try to model vulnerability and bravery. Yes. And um, what's been really transformative is how much the faculty have been making huge changes in their classroom to improve inclusivity and more brave about you know talking to their students. Um, you know, engineers have a really hard time talking about anything other than numbers. Right. And now I see them being able to pull in current events and relate them directly to what they're teaching in the classroom, which is so important. You know, like yes. the civil engineering, I don't know if you know this, but um, the bridges in New York City, or actually to Long Island, they're specifically just too short to let buses through because they didn't want poor people coming out to Long Island. Mm. And so... We have to think about how all these other things from our current events, our world, all the things going around us, how they specifically are interrelated to the engineer. And so we, you know, that's super that's powerful. Yeah, that is very, very powerful. And and this is really unfair to ask this question of you at the end of our conversation. But for those of us that are very interested and invested pretty much as the university and definitely uh, the department, this college. But how is it that we can get more female representation in STEM? Because you swim in it. You are a wonderful example. You know many women that have been successful. And I'm sure uh, in some of your spaces, it probably doesn't feel that there's underrepresentation because you are probably surrounded by many women that have strived and have been successful. But for many of us, we still see that underrepresentation. How can we better uh, encourage women more diversity in those spaces? There's a lot of answers to that question. Yes. And it's sort of broken all through the pipeline. Right. Um, it's a systemic problem, and I can name places that you can find issues throughout the entire pipeline. One of the things that I'm intrigued about right now is, and this is actually from the book Whistling Vivaldi that we just listened yeah. to, which is about stereotype threat. Um, we do worse when we have stereotype threat. We just, we just do. And so there's lots of ways to accomplish that. Oh, stereotype threat. Um, so women, for an example, is women are perceived to be worse at math. Mm -hmm. So if you, right before an exam, if you remind people of their gender, if, of a math exam, women will perform worse, mm -hmm. just naturally. Surprisingly, if you also, it's been shown that if you, um, right before a golfing 
tournament. Um, if you say that golfing is an example of your athletic prowess, white men do worse um, if they're right next to black men. Uh, you know, so it's there's because they think that, which is weird because I have to right. think of you know, golf not necessarily is more of a white man sport, but if you say no, it's related directly to athletic prowess. Whatever stereotypes that exist in the world, which there are a lot of them, if you remind people of them somehow right before, that person will do worse if they belong to that stereotyped threat group. Right. And so, you know, so that's why it's, you know, you really want to be careful. And sometimes, but you can, sometimes you can tap into a different stereotype that is actually a, a beneficial one. So, you know, like if you, instead of reminding people, that um, right before math test, if you remind the everybody, not just men or not just women, that oh my God, you just got into Texas A and M University and you're in this advanced class, you must be really smart. Then they align with the stereotype of they're really smart, and then they're not affected, so they don't actually perform worse. So you can get rid of it by reminding them of the stereotype that is the beneficial one. That's right. Um, and so there's lots of things that you can do uh, do in that space. The other thing that I am really intrigued about is overworking. Mm -hmm. So um, people who are stereotyped in a particular space are often fiercely private studiers because uh, they don't want to see, they don't want people to see them fail because they're afraid that they're going to conform to the stereotype. Yes. And that causes them to be very inefficient studiers. Mm -hmm. uh, they often uh, do twice as much work uh, and get half of the benefit out mm -hmm. uh, because of this fierce privateness of studying, um, of whatever they're doing. So they don't like people to see that fear of conforming to the stereotype and sort of being a bad representation for, for whatever you're representing uh, is so strong that people overwork and it, it's not beneficial and it tires them out. And so, and so one of the things that I'm trying to figure out how we can do within Texas A&M is, which Hullabaloo U is actually a great sort of start in this yeah, space, yeah. is, you know, what if we, when they first started school, we put them into randomized study groups where they're just expected to solve things together and study together. Um, and then, because once, once, if you can break that private studying apart and they see that, oh, those people don't know the answers either. And in fact, I actually know the answer a lot better than that person. Yeah. You know, it, it really will transform and get rid of that um, inefficiency. And so I think that will really help keep people in the major because there's this perception that they're the only ones who are struggling. Yes. Yeah. And you need to break that. And, and once you break that, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot easier. Mm. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. And, and as we close out, I want to know, is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to make sure that you, you mention that you bring out during this conversation today? I guess I just want to be really thankful for all the people that have helped me along the way and shaped me and helped me challenge my own thinking. Karen Watson being one of those people whom I mentioned before, she's, she's an outstanding mentor and she's mentored so many people. Yeah. Um, and all the people that in, you know, IEEI and, um, the engineering education faculty group that have been really right there with me, willing to sort of try to do these sort of uncomfortable things and be brave and vulnerable. Uh, I haven't done any of this on my own, and it's been really fun. It's been a, it's been a fun journey. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for being with uh, me today. Uh, again, it, it was definitely an honor and a joy. 
So thank you for all your work, all your contributions, what you do every day in all of your spaces, and definitely what you've done for the university and other institutions as well. And to our audience, thank you so much for being with us today. I hope you listen to this entire conversation and our other conversations. But as we close out, let's all try to be a little bit more like Dr. Hammond and allowing ourselves to be uncomfortable and vulnerable so that we can all aspire to be brave, to be lifelong learners, and to encourage others to be all that they can be. Thank you and have a great day.